All right, well, as I was preparing for this and hearing that text, my mind immediately went to uh, learning sign language growing up, and I didn't learn it well. I kind of learned just the basic 26 letters of the alphabet and some other not so great words to accompany that at times. Um, but this happened, I, I have this memory as I'm thinking of widows of my dad meeting this lady out on Highway 59 right in front of Roman Forest, which is not very far from here. And he found her with a bumper up on top of her shoulder, a metal bumper, and dragging the other end, walking down the median, walking back to her car. So he stops, which most of us should stop. I would encourage you, if you ever see this, to stop and say, hey, what's going on? And so as he got to know her, he realized she was deaf and that she couldn't hear very well. And she often got in traffic accidents because she wasn't visually able to see too well either. And so she had been hit several times. This wasn't her first. And she had been hit by a few trains. And her bumper often got knocked off. So. What he did was follow her home that day and attach her bumper again, and that turned into a, a relationship that blessed our family for many years to come as we got to know her. And her name was Miss Henderson. And Miss Henderson, uh, shortly after that incident, her trailer flooded in Splendora, and so much so that my dad had to swim in there and get her. But she had ignored the, police, the police's warnings to evacuate, so that's where we found ourselves. Often she was prideful, probably shouldn't be driving, probably shouldn't have been in her trailer, so my dad would come to the rescue often. And so we put her on her back, and, or on his back, and he trudged through flood water several blocks down the road back to his car in order to get her to our house. And so I learned a lot through that circumstance, that relationship with her, and there was many more stories like that that I could tell you of my dad, but she taught me a basic sign language. And I remember the book and studying that chart of the 26 letters. She also taught me, like I said, some not so great things. She was a little angry sometimes. So she often referred to my dad as Satan. And so I learned how to, you know, I, I, I know other words. But that was because he would not let her carry her bumper down the road. And he would not let her stay in her trailer. And he would often bring her over to our house so that she wasn't lonely. And so he interrupted her quiet life often. But she loved him. And I thought of that scripture that says, God first loved us. And that's, she loved him because my dad first took the opportunity to love her. And he often models that, and he's modeled it to me often through my dad because of the way that he takes care of people and has taken care of our family. And he showed me through growing up and ministering to typically older ladies of how to take care of someone who didn't have the strength, who didn't have the family, who didn't have the resources to take care of themselves, and so I learned that through the example of my parents. And so when I'm reading this passage or hearing that passage that Long just read, it is a lot in there. But Paul, again, he's been doing this through all the chapters. He's instructing a young elder, young Timothy, of how to simply take care of people. Or he just told us how the people of God should function inside of the church. And so my mind often reflects to how my parents took care of people. And our church growing up did an excellent job of ministering to the community around us and answering this call that Timothy is being given from Paul. And then I, I think of you. I mean, our last eight years that we've been here, we're going on eight years, which is crazy. I don't feel like it's been that long, but it has. And I've seen, we've gone through craziness together. And so I've seen that play out in flood relief. I've seen that recently through 2020 and on of how when we lose jobs, how this community takes care of each other. Uh, when family fails us, we've seen that. 
this place has become a sanctuary for us, or when a paycheck doesn't cover the expenses for the month. And so what, what Paul is doing, he's telling young Timothy that this is the role of the church, that when a need arises, we step in. That's what we do. That is a call on our lives, that we meet others where they can't always take care of themselves. And then if we look at this text today, he puts a little emphasis on the family, a big emphasis on the family and how he words this. And so he, he shows the responsibility of the church. It's not just to simply take care of needs or to provide financially, but it's the discipleship. That's what he's been talking about this whole time. We hope that these false teachers end up coming back to the Lord because of the rebuke we're giving them. We hope in the way that we shepherd these widows that it leads them into further discipleship with the Lord. And so as we're ministering as God's church, God does a few things and he humbles us. One is that. He takes the spotlight off of, off of us. So as I read this text, it's kind of taking the spotlight off of us, humbling ourselves so that we're freed up to minister to people around us. And so it puts a, a picture or gives us a bigger picture of what's going on. And so by living out this call in our lives, it affirms this design that we talked about a few chapters ago of this community that God has created, that he has raised up as pillars to hold up Christ. And so our, our service becomes an opportunity to humble ourselves and bring glory to the Lord. Focus off us and onto the Lord. Secondly, when I read this, when we faithfully take care of people around us, it, it brings some really necessary order. Uh, I see that in different ways. I see that in children's ministry. If there were not people back there, it would be chaos, right? We know our own homes. Uh, in this text, it puts perspectives on things that are important. And sometimes that provides encouragement. Uh, sometimes that might be practical help to those who are in need. Uh, we'll see it in our text of the way that they serve widows. This was a thing that sprung up. And so there's great beauty that when you're obedient and you listen to what the Lord has called us to, and I do, and we do this together, that we truly get to live into the scripture that says he's called us to be ministers of reconciliation. And so God puts structure in place that he's always intended us to live under, and it's a great blessing. And then lastly, what I see in the way that you have served me, uh, I've seen you serve this body, ministering to widows and orphans. That's happening right now as some of our families are taking care of kids that aren't theirs. And then also in the way that you take care of your own families, that God meets needs. So as you're serving, God is meeting your needs. And so he's equipping you as you're equipping others. And so if I go back to that Miss Henderson, old lady dragging bumper down the road analogy, that through my dad sacrificing our home where she could come stay with us, often sacrificing money to take care of her trailer and time, it was a family affair for us. We'd all hop in the old brown station wagon and head to Splendora, and we'd have a day of, raking a yard or taking care of toilets or fixing a doorbell that, and hers was different because it lit up the house, it didn't ring, obviously she couldn't hear it, but we would, I learned so much through that. And so it, it's an opportunity when we do these things for us to model to the world really who Christ is. And the reason that I have all of those stories because I was often brought along with my dad. So I was walked into these homes to minister, I wasn't just told. I got to hear some of these stories later, but a lot of it was 
first, firsthand knowledge and getting to see this. And so through their ministry, through my dad's kindness, through my mom taking time often to counsel people, that was a desire of hers, and seeing our church faithfully minister to Roman Forest and the surrounding area, I got a really good chance to be discipled myself. And so I didn't just learn how to love people. I didn't just learn about God's word, but I learned sign language, practical things. The Lord equips us in really interesting ways as we follow faithfully to take care of people, how to fix tires, how to set fence posts, and then also learning that sometimes you get taken advantage of. And that story went a little hard down the road a few years later, but for me, at the age of five or at the age of 10 or at the age of 15, I got to see this play out. And the Lord redeemed most of this. And I think he still is. I see some of the ways that he's still using that example of my home growing up in these first uh, few years of my life for the Lord to provide. Really avenues of not just confidence, but ministry still to this day. And I see that play out in the way that he ministers to my own kids. But sometimes we're not going to see that. And that's what next week we'll get to that. He talks about service and even sin, that sometimes we don't get to see how those play out in this lifetime, but that he will reveal them, that he will bless you for you being obedient. And through our obedience to other people, our own needs are met, and that he's equipping us to equip others. And so I want to look at this text. If you haven't opened up yet, um, it'll be 1 Timothy 5. We'll also put it up on the screen. But these first two verses say this. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. And so this passage is going to walk through some very practical things. Uh, this is very practical in what he's saying. Paul is, remember, if you remember, he's speaking to a young Timothy. He's an elder, a leader in this church over men that are way older than him. And so he's just being very practical, saying, Timothy, the way that you speak to older men in this church is not the way that you should speak to younger men. There is a difference. There is a respect that we give to older men, culturally but also spiritually. And the word that he uses towards the older men here is rebuke, which means to censor severely or, re or rebuke harshly. And so Paul is telling Timothy that when speaking to older men, they don't deserve that. That even if you might need to rebuke them, that treat them as a father. Go to them in a gentleness and a respect, knowing that they've laid their life down, they've put in time that you have not. And so speak to them in kindness as you would your father. And then he also speaks to, uh, to the younger men. Uh, he speaks in the way that we relate to, to women. He goes on to say that with older women and then with the younger generation or maybe Timothy's peers, there should be a genuine love and fraternity in the way that he communicates to them. So even there, he's not an elder that's lording over them and getting in their face when time comes to correct them, but he, he treats them as a friend, as someone that is a partner in Christ with him and doing this in the community. And so there's a love there, and he gives Timothy this practical advice when speaking to these people. And I love that he says, and to the younger ladies, he is to engage them in all purity. Uh, the NIV, I think I have that up there, 
or no, actually I don't on this scripture, but it says absolute purity. So there is supposed to be a very intentional way in that I, as a young elder, relate to younger women. And it puts intentional boundaries on the way that Timothy relates to these ladies and his peers. And so I, f- I feel that. I think we do that often. We'll encourage you that if you're sending emails or texts, put your wife on there. That's just practical. That's kind of what Paul is giving Timothy here. He says, as a young pastor, that it's important for me to protect myself, to protect my family, that my kids are constantly watching their dad. So I'm relating in the way that I relate to you, whether you're a man, woman, younger, or older. And so if we look at these words, it's not just practical wisdom either for me, but he's saying this is necessary. He puts very deep instruction and intention here. That might be a passing two verses for us, but pay attention. It's it's there for a reason. And he's speaking to Timothy because if we listen to it, it has huge effects. It goes well. He says later it's pleasing to God. But if we don't, it's, it has major pitfalls. And so in verse 3, we, we're talking about how that we generally re- relate in the verse, first two verses to everyone. And then he does this hard shift, and he, and he focuses specifically on widows, which is the majority of our text that Long just read to us. And I need you to not check out. So that's going to be a request. That is a lot of text about widows, and to be very honest, we don't have many, if any, in this building. Uh, a lot of us might be able to re- relate with that. We might have a mother that's in that position or that she has been in that position until she got remarried. So I'm just going to ask you to, to pay attention. Don't check out on me here. But with the age of our families and the society that we're in, we, don't, we haven't really had to deal with that. We've had a few scenarios in the past over the la- past five to eight years that we have had to walk through that with one of our elders in the past that passed away. But a big need of theirs during this time that Paul is speaking to Timothy was how to address the scenario that they found themselves in. We found ourselves in different scenarios, but for them, this was very important that all of a sudden they had this loss of life around them. So not just dealing with the tragedy of loss, but how do we take care of these ladies that now are in in, in, an awkward or strange or different position in life than they've ever been? And so in verse, verse 3, Paul says, honor widows who are truly widows. The NIV says, give proper recognition to those widows who are really in need. So really in need or true, truly widows. And the, and the word he uses here, proper recognition, is the word tomeo, Greek, which puts not just the idea of respect towards this group of ladies, but he kind of takes us back to Matthew 5. The more that I dug into this, or Matthew 15, he rebukes, Jesus rebukes the leaders at the time for the way that they used the law, which actually worked against the very design that the Lord had for their families, their mothers and fathers. And so what Paul does is he's putting emphasis on the character of God. He's, he's not just saying respect the people around you. He's actually taking them back how he has this whole time in this book, and he takes them back to the creation story again that the Lord set this up in a certain way for us to live. And a lot of the commentaries use Matthew 15 as he rebukes these leaders, Jesus does, because of the way that they were treating their fathers and mothers to expose really 
the Lord's heart and his character in Old Testament and New Testament. And so as we're reading this text, it's not just a text about widows, but he's affirming the way that we get to provide dignity to those around us who might feel it slipping away. So that could be parents, that could be family, that could be neighbors, but he's not just addressing widows, he's addressing the core of who we are. God's heart for his creation. And then verse 4 says, if you'll read along with me, but if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. So again, practically, Paul is saying that if there is family around you that is capable of helping a widow and their family, it falls on their shoulders first. Pretty, pretty straightforward. Uh, our country doesn't get that very well. Uh, if you go to most other countries, grandmother or grandfather sitting on the front porch, it is a multi-generational home, and usually families stay together or in the same courtyard or in the same vicinity. And so they live life together. Our, our culture is a little different. But what Scripture is saying here, whether we're in the U.S. or in Africa, doesn't matter. It says, in our young age, that typically our parents take care of us, or grandparents take care of us. You grew up with someone taking care of you. And so when you get older, Paul says, you should make some return or effort to make up for how your parents and grandparents provided for you. That's pretty practical. I think the kids in this room get that, that your parents take care of you when you're helpless and growing up, and someday they might end up there, and you, you need to take care of them. And it says, because this is pleasing in the sight of God. And when I read that verse, if you remember back to chapter 2, if you want to turn there, it's just a few pages over. He uses that same phrase when we approach prayer and we're praying for our leaders. He says, our prayers should humble us to lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. And then it goes on. In verse 3 of chapter 2, this is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. So why would he use that phrase? It's talking about two different things. We're talking about widows and we're talking about prayer. We're talking about kings and we're talking about ladies who have lost their husband. Why is that pleasing in the sight of God? The, the common theme that I see in both of these is to humble ourselves. So whether kings or widows, it says living a quiet life, or we could rephrase that to say a simple enough life that when problems arise, we can actually halt and pivot and take care of people. So he's calling us to a life that actually frees us up to minister, not a busy life, not a life that we can't even address the problem in front of us because we just have too much going on. And in, in chapter 2, he describes it as godly and dignified. And then in chapter 5, he says here what we just read, that it displays honor and godliness. And so it's a common theme that he keeps bringing up to remind them of their character, of who God's character is, of what we are to do, that we are to lay our lives down for families and widows, those in need, 
that we pray for our world leaders, that we pray for our elders, that we pray for the high, we pray for the low. As we address sin and the false teachers, as we take care of the church, all of this is to model God's faithfulness. It's to model godliness to a world that's watching. And then he tells us why in chapter 2, verse 4. We do all of that so that all people may be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. There's a purpose in what, what we're doing here. And so in love, in our ministry, in our quiet and simple lives, we show honor and dignity to people that might not feel very honorable or dignified. It's a big deal. A lot of you are walking through that right now. Some of you have taken your mothers into your homes, and it's difficult. It's hard because we're prideful mainly. Not because they're hard sometimes. We're just prideful people. And so the Lord is saying, consider what I'm asking you here. This is where dignity is founded and godliness is born. It's in the vicinity of God. It's in God's character. And then if you'll look on in verses 5 through 8, he puts definition to those that are truly widows. So he kind of gets to the point of here's who we're taking care of. Here's where we're going to go in this scenario. And so he says, A, she who is truly a widow that is left alone. So she's alone. That's one aspect of how he defines truly a widow. And then B, he says, she has set her hope on God. So he puts two parameters here. He sets them apart through the fact that they truly are a lady of the Lord, someone that is pursuing God. She prays day and night and that she is alone. And the word there he uses is continues, continues day and night. And it also carries this idea of kind of a, a, a depth to it, just like the first two verses. There's a depth that nothing can distract her, that she prays day and night. And what did she just go through? She's a widow, right? So she's gone through death, and even in the face of losing a spouse, she continues on and she pursues the Lord. So Paul's describing kind of who we're going to help here, not to push other people away, but to say, here's how the church can help. And so what was happening in this larger group, this is why I'm saying don't check out. We're getting somewhere, right? We have this group of ladies that, whether they're young or old, they have a large group in their church that have lost their spouses. I don't know what that's from, but usually, typically in that age or back in Timothy's day, people died earlier. So it's just the fact that their husbands died, and that could have been an early or later in their marriage. Some were already serving the church in ministry roles. These ladies, we see through how Paul describes that here. But now with their husband's revenue gone, they're going out and they're having to provide for themselves or having to go seek out other ways to survive. And what that did, it left a huge hole because they were serving the church faithfully, right? He just described them in that way. And so... They're saying, we don't want them just to have to leave because they need money. We can provide that. That's a practical thing that we can do. And then other ladies were receiving back their dowries. So they were given from their former family to the new husband, but the husband dies, and so that family gave it back to either that lady herself or they gave it back to her father so her father could take care of their daughter again now that she has no husband. But some weren't getting that dowry back. They're being abused in that way, and, and this culture is, is different than ours. So Paul lays out these parameters to say that the church needs to be rational here. It's, it's really practical, that if someone is truly in need, 
Let's meet that need. But he was running into the problem that some of these ladies either weren't asking their family or their families weren't providing for them or they were taking that money that the church gave them and they were spending it in inappropriate ways or ways that were kind of not the best. And then some were just avoiding all of that scenario and going to make money in improper ways that did not honor the Lord in any way. So he's got lots of things happening here. And he describes that last scenario as kind of what he does in other texts as this Pauline paradox where they're actually living but they're dead. That even through death of a husband, it didn't encourage them into further ministry or to take refuge in the church, but actually just kind of exposed more of their heart that they weren't really even ever living for the Lord. Some of them. And so Paul takes time to write to Timothy to say, hey, I don't want you to feel like you have, you're obligated to take care of all these needs. You just can't do it. And there's some other ways that we can go after resources here to help in that and minister to all of us. And so he says, if we are going to take care of those that are truly in need, that are left alone, then let's first ask the right questions. And so he starts going down that list. Do they have family that could easily provide for them? If so, great. Let's use that. Let them use that, and we'll continue on in the ministry that they're doing. If not, then we're instructing them into a godly living so that if we do support them, that it actually provides for their needs, right? And they aren't just squandering it. They don't become busybodies or idlers, as the text says. And so in verse 5 through 7, he puts this responsibility on the widow to fulfill these requirements that he mentions to receive support. And so he uses a word in there, command, and it's to show how strong, not, not a, that he's going after them to say, hey, I'm commanding you to do this as widows, but it's really to show the protection and the safeguard that the church can be for them. That I'm commanding you into this because I believe wholeheartedly of what the Lord does here and provides protection for his church through us, through, through the church. And so he provides a, a oversight here that is very necessary and intentional in the way that we treat men, women, widows, church leaders, false teachers, and he goes down the list. So what I don't want you to hear, which is what me and my wife talked about a little bit this week, she's like, it kind of sounds a little degrading if you look at it just like that, that these widows are going to go off and do all these sinful things. And I was like, yeah, and that's what we need to look at. But that wasn't, Paul wasn't saying they're all going that way. But they are prone to do certain things. That after time, he had seen this pop up several times. And after being at this church and walking through with young families or marriages early on, you kind of see typical things that pop up. Or when life gets stressful, we kind of see these things arise in us. And so that's what Paul's doing. He's addressing two things that he typically sees that, wi that widows are tempted with. Not all of them. But he says that when losing a spouse, often they're, in, they're tempted with immoral living. And it could be for several reasons. And the second thing he says, they become self-indulgent people. That they don't continue on to take up the banner for the Lord and ministry, but sorrow kicks them. That, that, that life hurts. That they lose focus. And so he says, we have a great ministry here to come alongside them in their pain and shepherd that and not lose them, not let them get distracted. 
Not let them cower in the corner, but bring them back into the Lord's house. So Paul says we want to shepherd this well. And he points back at the family. It becomes a, a family affair. And so he addresses the family. He says their family's not going to take care of them. They're essentially turning their back on God because it is the family's responsibility to take care of their people. That is how the Lord set us up. But if this widow is indeed serious about the Lord and she has served faithfully, then it's definitely the church's responsibility to take care of her, to give her a, a dignified scenario that she can continue to minister to those around her and continue to serve and that we lessen that blow of death. That's hard. That's a long time to live with someone and then be lost or them be lost. And so we have this responsibility to come alongside people through their grieving process and help them along. And so that's what I want you all to hear. This is not just a passage about widows. It's not Paul laying out this strict code. He goes on in verse 9, and we see this idea of a registry, and it seems like he just keeps tacking on to, here's where widows fall, and let's keep them in here. But he says they may be enrolled, and he goes through a list of criteria for this group of people that they cared for at the time that they needed the church needed to put time and attention towards and money towards and I, I went back to flood relief it reminds me we all went through that if you were here four or five years ago and when Harvey hit it was all of us right we had people making tacos we had people inside homes ripping out sheetrock we had people washing dishes we had people washing clothes we had kids that were helping and getting equipment ready and throwing them onto trucks not the children, but the equipment. Um, we had a lot going on, but not everything was the same. Not every family got flooded as bad as some of the other families did. Not all of them needed that care. Some of them did not have spouses or help around them. So they needed more attention. And so what ended up happening, up front, we wanted to help everybody. And we jumped in full force. And we set up a clothing bank, and we got involved with other churches, and it became a lot. But the great thing was that you were all here. If you remember those days, we had about a week or two weeks where you got flooded, you couldn't even go into the office. And so it was great and we took advantage of that. But then everyone went back to work. And so that ended up looking like me and Patrick and a few other people and we're like, whoa, where did everybody go? Because the flooded homes didn't go away. And so that turned into putting parameters on how we were going to assist. We had honestly plenty of money and we got to go chase that down. But it took a lot of paperwork on my behalf to go in and do that. And so we started putting stipulations that if you need this, then fill out this form or come talk to us. And a lot of that was put on me by these other organizations that were providing goods and money and furniture and food. And so Paul finds himself in a similar scenario, agreeing that not all the circumstances were equal. And so we see him kind of do what I did with flood relief. He breaks them up into different categories. He says, young and old. And he asks those important questions. Like, has the woman been remarried? Because if she has, then probably she has several families that she can receive support from, that have cared for her. He also puts parameters on if they had modeled faithfulness. Mainly because the requirements that if they were going to assist them financially, they were going to ask them to serve the church in different capacities which took a humility. They were going to be asking them to provide meals and to welcome people into their home. So they didn't need people that were always gone and not in their home. 
They didn't need people that didn't care for people. They wanted to say, we're looking for a specific way that we can assist them and encourage them into faithful living. And then the last six, five or six verses, 11 through 16, he, he describes various scenarios to use in caution younger widows or to use caution with younger widows. He's giving practical reasons why it's typically unwise to call these younger widows into rigorous service to the church. And so he acknowledges things that happen in our lives. We have hormones and we have passions. He's saying they're young and they desire certain things that typically the older widows don't desire. And so he addresses some of these things that we don't want to tie them down, these younger ladies, to a service and make them feel obligated to serve in this capacity when down the road they, they actually might move on to another husband. And so we end up making them feel guilty. He said, I don't want to make them do these things. And then they say, well, do I even have permission to go and lead my life as I thought I would before my husband passed away? And so he's addressing practical things that he knows that they still have children, a lot of them, that they have things at home that they have to take care of. So can they take care of the things we're going to ask them to do with inside the church. So he's trying to be kind in their approach. And he's acknowledging some things that happen in younger women, that they have more energy. And so they can probably tackle things a little bit faster sometimes, so we don't want them to get idle or get bored and become busybodies, where that leads to gossip. It, it tends to happen. We see this pattern that has happened. Not everyone, but we want to address that. And it's not degrading, but Paul is wanting to acknowledge things that could happen to protect this group of people in their church that they've faithfully steward into protecting their leaders and the people around them. And then I see that as it's not just a diss on young women. He, he does it to Paul or to Timothy in the first few verses. The reason he says to protect with absolute purity is because younger men typically have passions and they get out of hand. And, and boredom does not provide well for a young man. It doesn't go well. And so the Lord is saying, stay focused here. It's the reason that there's structure here. So Paul says, and to, in order to not push these younger women to be irritated later or to put them in a place of feeling trapped or unrest, he encourages Paul or he encourages Timothy to free them up to do what's best for their specific scenario not to force them to serve the church just to receive money, but he says, if you want to move on and to be married, great. Marriage and children and raising a godly family are no less a ministry and worship to the Lord than serving God's church. And then our, our text ends, if you read those last, that last verse, it ends with a call to take serious our spiritual condition, and he brings it again back to the family that it is their role first to take care of widows in their family if possible. And if not possible, then by all means, it is we're going to take care of them, young or old. I don't think there's definition there. But if there is need, Jesus addressed those needs. And so he models it, and now Paul is passing that on to younger Timothy. So I'll ask the question, because you've stuck with me. Why is that important to us? Why do... 
the way that we take care of widows matter. Because at some point, some of you will be widows. At some point, uh, another hurricane will pass through Kingwood. I pray not. But reality is, that's going to happen. We live in the southern coastal region of Texas. So that's going to happen. Uh, some of you are going to lose children. I don't look forward to that day. Uh, we might lose jobs along the way and need help. And so Paul is addressing not just widows. He's challenging the church not to just step in even to provide financially. So that's the thing often we feel like we have nothing to offer, but I can just throw gifts at them, right? And Paul's saying, I don't even want to do just that. That is not the point here. But I want to engage in each other's lives in a way that produces godliness and discipleship. Or as it described earlier, honor and dignity. And so he actually encourages Timothy here that sometimes the best thing for a person might not be to provide for them financially. That we actually could cause more harm by handing them money if they're going to squander it and abuse it. And so what we want to do is enter into relationship, into discipleship, to engage in their heart, heartache and their struggle in the moment and produce a believer or a friendship or a relationship that goes towards the Lord and brings them into further community. Not just to step in and save the day. Jesus did that but to intentionally engage others spiritually. And so when we're doing that, we make people feel human. And so that word dignity, to bring them some honor again, that they feel low, that they might have lost it through circumstances or through poverty. But our job is to remind them that their worth is in their creator, right? Not in circumstances. And I, I think we can all feel that at times. I've heard it from your mouth, that, oh, like I'm just a mom. Like, yeah, you're a mom. Praise God. I'm thankful for the moms in this room. I'm thankful for the grandparents in this room. Grand, grandparenting is hard, right? Just heard that this morning. Life is hard. But the Lord has given you honor in that position. I look forward to the day that I have gray hair. Kelsey makes fun of me for that. But because there's honor there, that the Lord provides wisdom in our older age that we need time to walk through some of this that the punk 35-year-old pastor does not understand that some of y'all have gone through. And so it humbles us and reminds us that we are no better off than those in need. You might have more resources, so the Lord says give them away. That I have strength right now, then strengthen a brother and hold them up as a pillar, right? That you might have health and money, but that all comes from the same God. So again, it's, it's not just giving up our resources, but it's discipling souls. And sometimes that service looks like providing diapers or meals or encouragement. And other times it's having hard conversations. We talk about that a lot. Making sure that a brother or a sister is keeping their eyes on Christ. It's hard. And a lot of you do not like confrontation. But the Lord has given you the role to be a, a confronter for his glory. Sometimes it's swimming into a flooded trailer and putting an 85-year-old or 85-pound, 90-year-old on your back. And that story is so funny to me because she literally waved an imaginary cowboy hat and then slapped him on the booty <laughs> like he was a bull. And she kicked him in the ribs. That's a true story. Ministry is strange, what the Lord calls us into sometimes. But for me, it's those scenarios of God 
often allowing me to see or for us to provide for someone financially and, material, and with materials where he uses it in a million other ways to provide for the church. So in that scenario, I had no idea that as a six-year-old and 15-year-old in that, in that window that the Lord was providing for me 30 years down the road. My, my own mother goes deaf a few years ago into 2019. Sorry about that. 2019, she lost her hearing completely. She ended up having surgery. But in that moment between the surgery and the loss of hearing, it provided a lot of dignity that I could spell out words. She was embarrassed. She couldn't speak. And so I was able to sign with her and just spell out very simple words. And she was like, oh, whereas my dad couldn't. And so I could see the things there that the Lord was already providing down the road. It's beautiful. Like, that's a beautiful picture of, I didn't see that coming, but he did. And we opened in Colossians 3. I encouraged our people up in the prayer meeting before the service today to accompany this text with Colossians 3. It provides a pretty good parallel to what the Lord calls us into. So I'd encourage you to write that down, go back and read it. But it shows God's faithfulness. And so every Sunday that we get up here, we can try to put creative stories together or make the text louder than it seems. And my prayer is that we don't. My prayer is that we articulate what the text says. But every week, my hope is that your eyes continue to look at the Lord, that you're not distracted so much so with your kids or bills or heartache that you can't worship the Lord. And it will be painful. And kids are frustrating. And marriages are frustrating. And life is frustrating at, at times. But I hope that our collective prayer would be that our character becomes God's character. And so as you read 1 Timothy 5, as you read Colossians 3, that's going to be my push to you to put your character before the Lord and say, does it match up with yours? God, does my character look like yours? And ask him to refine us and continue to work on us so that we can be a light, a city on a hill. He says, this is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. Let's pray.